some people are a bit crazy. In the good old days, those people sometimes came into reception or you know, the local paper I worked, or they'd write a letter, there was a bit crackers, and you'd put it in the bin. And now they can find other like-minded crazy people online and circulate stuff. Welcome to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction. Produced by Shoutout UK, the UK's leading political and media literacy education platform in association with ACT, the Association for Citizenship Teaching. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, and I am here with Matt Chorley, the editor of Times Redbox. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you said, I'm the editor of Times Redbox, which essentially the Times is a political uh, newsletter and podcast. And I also do a host events for the Times. I um, write a column in the paper on a Saturday. Uh, and from this summer, I'm going to be hosting uh, a show on the new Times Radio when it launches. Oh, amazing. Congratulations. Have you done radio before or is this your first stint? No, is the answer. So it's quite <laughs> daunting. I mean, I've ho- yeah, hosting the podcast uh, is, you know, practice to some extent. Although, of course, as you know, and we're doing this podcast now, if we d- say something wrong, we can go back and edit it out. Whereas if you're live on the radio, it's like that you can't actually do that. Yeah, you can't be. Uh, let's just take that again. Just everyone wipe that off your minds and let's, let's try it again. So, um, well, I mean, amazing. Congratulations and best of luck on that. And um, so one of the things I wanted to start off with is the role of the media and, and I cannot stress this enough, responsible journalism. Um, and as someone that's been doing journalism for quite some time, um, even moving into radio soon, uh, what do you view as the role of the media and responsible journalism? Not just in a time like this, but, but also just in general for society. Well, I mean, I suppose the key things are... They sort of seem obvious, but sometimes they need restating when you see what less responsible outlets are doing. But it's to uh, tell the truth or at least be accurate in what you know and sometimes admitting what you don't know. Um, And I think uh, that's true generally in the news, but definitely during the uh, try to cover the coronavirus outbreak is that sometimes admitting whether it's in a news story, but more often than like analysis or explainers and that sort of stuff, admitting what we don't know is just as useful. Uh, because sometimes there are people who assert that this is definitely happening or this is definitely the case. And actually, uh, a responsible news outlet could be doing its job to say, well, we actually, we just don't know that yet. Um, and that was probably true to some extent, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, during a general election campaign or during uh, the Brexit debates. Uh, people on different sides say things with great certitude um and actually sometimes it could be our job as the media to say well actually we don't know that yet either because we can't see into the future or the data's just not clear or the information's not clear or that decision hasn't been made uh, behind closed doors yet so there's no way of knowing whether or not that is the case so i think there's a big that's definitely a big part of what we need to do and it's it's telling people what they need to know in a sort of calm and measured way um, but also in an engaging way. I mean, that doesn't mean being boring, because if it's boring, people will go to places which are more exciting, which might not be quite so responsible. Mm-hmm. No, of course, of course. And it's important to have that that balance, isn't it, between entertainment and making sure that it's as engaging as possible, but also making sure that you, you stay as, as true to the facts as, as, as humanely possible at the given time. Um, and 
it's interesting that you mentioned obviously the um you know just making sure that people don't uh, don't assume things or you know if you don't know information or the information hasn't become clear yet to make people aware of that um, but one of the things that we've seen especially in the current crisis is that misinformation quite often thrives in, in those periods where uh, journalists don't know or we just don't know the facts yet because other science hasn't played catch up yet or if the government hasn't made a decision yet or, or things are a little bit still in the sort of up in the air um, so w- what kind of misinformation have you encountered during this during, during this crisis, during during this period? I mean, there's obviously, there's the high profile stuff, you know, Donald Trump drinking disinfectant and that sort of stuff. I, I was I, injecting I, disinfectant. Injecting, I mean, injecting. <laughs> I mean, we're splitting heads. Whatever right. you do, don't put <laughs> disinfectant in your body. Um, I think the, 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 the more, not troublesome, it's not always with a sort of bad intent. It's a sort of low level uh and it, social media is a big part of this because people say well i saw somewhere uh you know so so the general scientific consensus on coronavirus has been that once you've had it you have antibodies which mean that you don't get it again and uh that's been you know and because that's the case of viruses generally that was the assumption from the beginning and there've been bumps along the road but that still seems to be the scientific consensus but then you've got people say well i saw there was a story online saying that there was one person in japan who had it twice and then, well, okay, but does that totally undermine that? Or actually science would say, well, you know, in no science is 100% perfect because you're dealing with human bodies and not numbers on a spreadsheet. So, you know, there are anomalies and all that sort of thing. And so I think that sort of people sort of rubbishing uh, a scientific, a loose scientific consensus based on one thing they saw on the internet. And sometimes it's not even an article. They saw somebody else say something. And that that, that sort of happens quite a lot. There was a thing about you can't let your cat out of the house. Uh, and then that turned out to not be quite what the charity that had uh, put out a statement was talking about. Um, and I think a lot of it is born out... You know, there were some people clearly, um, you know, push disinformation for malign purposes. But a lot of the time, particularly in a crisis like this, Blimey, we want certainty. I mean, in a, in a society where, um, you know, there's an app for that. I mean, there's an app, turns out there's an app for letting us out of the house as well. But, you know, there's an app for absolutely everything. Um, there is no problem in life which can't be solved but with a, uh, with an Amazon order or, you, you know, it, it, I mean, clearly there are lots of people in society who, sh- who have huge worries and struggles. But a lot, if you're generally comfortable and your job is okay, um, we've got used to there basically being nothing that we can't do. We can buy tickets for that. You can stream that online. You can talk to your friends. You can go and you know, all that. Um, and I think what's been so interesting about this crisis is it's been so unbelievably all-encompassing. And yet, particularly at the beginning, we knew nothing. We had nothing to latch onto. And that was what was so disorientating for a generation who uh, was so used to everything sort of being all right. And so when you see a fact or something that looks like a fact floating around online... You want to latch onto it because it tell it gives you some certainty one way or the other. Yes, cats can get it, or yes, cats can't get it. That's better in a way than not knowing the impact on cats, you know. And and uh, I think so. That's slightly where um, uh, so that's where main you know responsible journalism comes in because you have to give people the facts as much as we know them, but also reassure them to some extent. It's okay that we don't know this yet, but there's progress being made. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think that's a really good really good point. I mean, we want certainty, as you say, and we're from a generation where, as you say, anything can be sorted with, with the click of a button or, or a few clicks of a button. Um, and and one of the, I think, issues with that is, is like you said, that we, we want information. We want to know everything about everything yesterday. We don't want to wait. And when there is that 
that lag of, of factual information. Like you said, in this crisis, we didn't really know much of anything at the beginning. And we still don't know a lot. Like, science is still playing catch-up. We still aren't understanding what, what the situation is. So that creates almost like a vacuum of information where, where misinformation and so forth can sort of latch onto because people people want some level of certainty, even if, you know, if they were being critical about it. It's, it's, you, know, you can kind of denote that actually maybe that's not entirely true or actually that seems a bit too far-fetched or why is in other reputable media sources talking about the same thing? Um, and one of the issues I find um, with that is that for, for quite a long time, especially in the UK, but hearing from other from other people across across the world this is a phenomenon that's happening globally is that for the longest time the trust in media or the trust in journalism has been has been depleting and in the uk i know we've got a very specific problem where people tend to distrust the mainstream media whatever they refer to as the mainstream media they see it as politicized and all this kind of stuff i mean how um how, how much has that affected your work and have you seen that trend change during 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 the pandemic well, there's definitely been sort of reports of polls saying uh, that trust has collapsed. I mean, there was one one in particular which showed, you know, which asked a question, uh, have you lost trust in this list of uh, organisations and people and that sort of thing? And the media come out very badly on that. Um, but people are sort of slightly diff... The People are not very good at remembering what they used to think. It's why if you, if you ask people, did you vote for... Uh, um, Labour in 1997. Everyone who could vote in 1997 claims they voted for Labour because it was a landslide victory. They, were, you know, people want to think that they were on the winning side. It was actually the Conservatives got millions of votes, but nobody quite remembers that. It's a bit, um, uh, and and so uh, actually far more useful for tracking things like trust in the media is to look at trackers. So that at various points, uh, YouGov, uh, I mean, lots of pollsters do, it, but YouGov is the one that we use a lot of the times, and they ask every month, "Do you trust these?" organizations and actually what we found even just going back to december when bear in mind we're in the middle of a general election campaign which was very fought and politicized and partisan was that actually trust levels in whether it's bbc news reporters itv news reporters um quality newspapers like the times mid-market like the daily mail red tops like the sun trust levels in all of them the, the number of people who said they trusted them was pretty level from December. So this idea that coronavirus has come along and has dramatically undermined uh, trust in the media um, doesn't actually quite ring true. Now, it is true to say that although about half of people trust BBC reporters, the further you go down the scale, you know, uh, broadsheet or uh, quality newspapers down to uh, red top tabloids, um, the tabloids are less trusted than uh, others, although, of course, they do sell more copies than uh, other newspapers. So make of that what you will. Um, that people say they don't trust the media. And actually, what we've seen during the um, the crisis, and if you you know put Twitter to one side, which is generally the right thing to do when trying to sort of gauge public opinion, because if you, if, you, if you looked at Twitter, you'd think everyone hated Boris Johnson. You look at his poll ratings, and they have never been higher. And uh, uh, satisfaction with how the government is handling the crisis across all pollsters is incredibly high. Uh, although coming down slightly now, and actually, if you look at what's happened during the crisis, um, the uh, despite what people might say on Twitter about how they've lost faith in the media, um, every single media outlet is enjoying surges in audience. Uh, whether that's uh, TV news bulletins, online websites, radio stations, 
the you know the Times has seen a big surge in people taking out paid subscriptions. Uh, and why is that? Because in a time of crisis, and they want that information, and also the fact that they've got time because they're probably stuck at home, and so they feel like they might make more use of it. I mean, clearly the one area this is not true is in print sales because. The shops aren't open. People aren't going to the shops to buy the newspaper, but they're getting their news from somewhere else. Um, so actually, I do think what it shows is that in a crisis like this, people have, by and large, turned to uh, their trusted mainstream media outlets to try and get a handle on what is going on. No, I I, I agree. Um, I think uh, what was what was um, talking about was actually that that trust. I feel at least during during, during the pandemic has definitely in- increased um to, to some to some extent whether whether that um carries on um after the uh, after the pandemic is over i think i think remains to be seen but i think you are definitely right there has been an increase in people engaging with uh what people consider you know legacy publications or or mainstream uh, media outlets um but you, you mentioned something quite interesting that uh, around around you know politicization and, and and bias essentially especially during the during the uh, December 2019 election and and bias is quite an interesting thing because as you say you know people want to be on the winning side so they're kind of like biased towards themselves being like oh well I definitely voted for that party because that party got a landslide victory or whatever it could be and bias I think is something that we've all got to recognize that we have um, every human being has it it could be something as as innocent as I don't know um <clears throat> what drink you might want to have this evening to take the edge off. I mean, if you were going to ask me, I'd suggest something that I that I, I enjoy or whatever else. Uh, that's a bias that I have towards a specific drink. It's harmless, uh, but it is a bias. Um, obviously, biases become more harmful when we're talking about specific, you know, gender, race, religion, whatever else. And as a journalist, someone that obviously um, records uh, podcasts or that, that does work in journalism, how do you get away from that bias that you that you inherently have yourself as a human being like how do you make sure that you park it aside necessarily or 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 aware that you have it because it's something that i think we all have and we all uh end up utilizing when when we engage in media be it online offline on tv or whatever else and it does shape the way we the way we view the world the way we see about different issues but as a journalist of course someone that's creating information and 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 putting it out there or curating it rather how, how do you set that aside so I mean, the first I think the first thing I'd say is that uh, bias in and of itself isn't uh, necessarily a bad thing. So I sort of have, have this weird thing of sort of riding, well, several horses at once. So on the one hand, if I uh, had a news story uh, which I was writing for the the news pages, then uh, you know that I would write as a straight news story. Um, but because I'm also a columnist and uh, present on a podcast. Um, actually, my opinion and bias is part of the deal. That's what you're getting when you read a comment piece. Um, and the red box morning email that I write is basically all of my take on the day. Now, the bias might be that sometimes uh, I take the mick out of the same people quite often. So it might be that, you know, Nigel Farage and Richard Bergen and um, Barry Gardner get more mentions just because I find it quite funny. But then it's a sort of it's a running joke and that sort of thing. Uh, but people know where if you read it every day, people know that's where I'm coming from. And I get emails from people saying, I don't think I agree with you on anything, but I enjoy the email because I know where you're coming from. Um <laughs> And because because it's an authored thing, it's got my face at the top, they know that the bias is part of the deal, if you like, um, and they can go, you know, they can go read the news pages of the Times to get, you know, the straight uh, news and then compare that to my take on it. And quite often they'll get in touch and say, I disagree with you on this and this. And, and sometimes it might make me think, well, actually, maybe they've got a point on that. Maybe I, I was wrong. So bias in itself isn't necessarily um, 
uh, an issue. And I think of course. Um, if in the case of a general election campaign, you know, newspapers taking different stances and it basically it takes what is the sort of standard position for newspapers uh, and their approach to political parties. Everything just gets turned up to 11 during an election campaign. So you have papers on the right, like the uh, Daily Mail and the Sun and the Telegraph and the Times, uh, who say they're back in the Conservatives. So uh, generally, everything the Conservatives do is painted in a slightly better light. Although, I mean, there are days when, you know, Boris Johnson has a terrible day and has locked himself in a fridge or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, most papers yeah. will still report that because it's entertaining. Um, and then on the other side of the argument, you have the, uh, the Independent and the Guardian and the Mirror who um, will turn a blind eye to all of Labour's shortcomings uh, because they would rather that that was the outcome of the general election. And um, I think if readers are aware of that, I mean, part of the reason why the papers take that stance, of course, is because they know that that's where their readers are. And certainly we saw it during the EU referendum campaign when the Times backed Remain because all the research we had showed that that's where the readers were, but the Sunday Times backed Leaf, again, because that's where the uh, um, readers were. And this could be very confusing sometimes, because some people sometimes have the view of uh, the sort of the Murdoch empire, if you like, having this um, sort of, you know, uh, view right across the board, whether it's the Sun, the Sunday Times, the Times. And actually, the papers take different stances on things all the time, you know, different areas of policy and that sort of stuff, um, to try and reflect the view of the editor and the view of the, of the reader as well, because ultimately, it's a it's a product that we're selling and we want to be in tune with the reader. I think where um, where newspapers and news websites succeed or should succeed, and I would say this because um, this is essentially what the Times does, is try to keep that separation of news and comment. So you sort of report the news in the in the news pages pretty straight and then you, um, uh, you have people commenting on it, whether it's columnists like me or the paper's leader column, in the uh in the comment pages rather that i think where it starts getting muddied is when you have sort of front page comment pictures comment pieces or you know headlines which are, you know could be posters for one side or the other uh and that sort of thing and i think that's where people get become less trustful of it um but having said that I, on the on the question of trust it's good to have a healthy skepticism about what you read if 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 we discovered the public had one, you know, 100% of the public trusted one news outlet, you'd be quite worried about the power of, you know, because no news outlet is perfect, because the news isn't perfect. You're only ever reporting a partial account of what went on. Um, and, you know, even if you're reporting a press conference, we're getting the press conferences every day at five o'clock, uh, nobody reports everything that goes on. So what you leave in and what you take out is a choice that's made. And it's sort of rough and ready. And sometimes the bit of it that's most important doesn't become clear for a couple of weeks because it turns out that what they said then was different later on. Um, and so it's all a no news organisation is perfect. So it's quite good if the public's got a healthy scepticism of, of it. And in fact, if people are currently now thinking about their how much they trust this news outlet or that news outlet, it might make them read around the subject a bit. You know, if they read something, they think, blimey, that's, that surely can't be right. Well, maybe they'll go online and try and um, see if it is right rather than just taking it at face value mm. no of course of course and and um it's funny you mentioned the the murdoch empire because that's talking of uh misinformation that's that's one that circulates on occasion online that murdoch the empire somehow controls everything and controls what we hear which is of course is is uh, utterly not true um 
but one of the things that you mentioned, of course, and, and I think that there is an important distinction there between sort of news and comment. And, you know, if you pick up a newspaper or if you go on, you know, the Times website or the Guardian website or the BBC website, it's very obvious where the, the comment pieces are and where the where the real news is. Um, but the lines can sometimes become blurred when it comes to, to social media because often you're not getting... Um, one specific publications you know news side and comment pieces you're 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 just getting filtered news or filtered information filtered comment pieces or whatever based on what you're interested in if you click a load of articles that are say pro boris johnson or anti boris johnson you end up often seeing uh, that bit of information coming through and obviously again when when you look at it on facebook or when you look at it on on twitter or instagram or wherever else it's not sometimes as obvious to tell what is necessarily comment or what is necessarily um, actual sort of news articles. So how 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 much of an issue do you think that is in terms of, because again, most, a lot of people, I'd say not most people, but a lot of people get their information from social media, especially young people. Um, so doing about healthy level of skepticism, but it is quite hard because if we go back to that issue of bias, if you see something on social media that pops up that affirms your bias that affirms your view you're gonna trust it more but scrutinize it less and no, that becomes a bit of an issue yeah no i think that's right and in particular you know in this the coronavirus crisis if you think that uh the the threat has been overblown and it's time to open up the economy and you keep coming across comment pieces which chime with your view that's not challenging the uh counter argument about well you know the impact on the health of the nation and the nhs's ability to cope and and all that sort of thing and i suppose that's the in terms of improving media literacy uh, reading around a subject and being able to identify that if a story or an article online has got uh somebody's big face at the top that's quite a good big giveaway uh that it's a comment piece look at where it you know the section that it's in look at the url if it says comment or views or whatever in the url if it's a comment piece you should you should read it and it may well make a you know a strong case and it could be the definitive piece that uh sums up a particular issue but it's as, it is a comment piece but distinct from an analysis i mean an awful lot of the sort of an analysis and q and a's uh, which we've run in the the Times joint this have been as straight down the line as you could possibly be. You know, the hours are spent um, trying to make sure it doesn't fall into the trap. Says bias, but yeah, you're right that the um, making sure that you don't just read the stuff that you agree with, uh, because it's possible, not in every case, but it's possible that the thing you think you agree with isn't true. You know, that the starting point that set you off down that road of having that opinion might not be the case that if you uh if you get in your head that the sky is green and you just follow people on twitter who agree with you just share other articles uh with uh saying the sky is green then um that doesn't make the sky green it just means there are loads of other people who have got it wrong as well um and so i think that you're you're totally right having that sort of skepticism about comment pieces and uh, what the purpose of this is? Is it to inform me? Is it just to entertain me? My Saturday column is essentially a string of jokes. It's you know it's taking the Mickey out of politicians, um, but that's that is distinct from a sort of thousand word polemic trying to make you shift your opinion on a matter of policy or a politician and that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. No, of course, of course, and that's and that, you know, comment pieces are are interesting. They're often written by people that know about the subject or that have experience or expertise in that subject. So they're often opinions that have a certain worth. And, and like with 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 your newsletter, for example, it's very clear who's writing it. You can research this person. You can uh, research what their what their views are. You can agree with them or you can disagree with them. That is entirely, of course, up to you. But it's very very clear what the what the purpose of that is. And then obviously, if you go onto the news pages of the Times or the BBC or whatever, you can see fact-based journalism that doesn't have that necessary common element but gives you the facts and then obviously you can you can filter around um and i think you're right it's important when it goes to social media to be aware of what you're reading to be aware of what you're what you're engaging with and to also be aware that um if you keep clicking on certain articles to have a certain view you will end up having a you will end up going into a bubble a social media bubble that has a specific viewpoint that the articles that you get shown have a specific viewpoint that's not necessarily a bad thing um, but being aware of it's important. Um, of course, what becomes problematic is when you get we when you have in those feeds misinformation. And one of the things that has grown, I think, out of this out of this current pandemic is definitely uh, misinformation. Some utterly insane and hilarious, um, but others quite quite damaging. And all all of them obviously influence public debate or can influence public debate in a very very negative way. I mean, what? Do you feel like journalists or, or media organizations can do to start combating some of some of some of the stuff that's coming out at the moment? One thing that I'm much more aware of now than I probably was before, and partly because it's the Times uh, does this a lot, is the um, the use of SEO, search engine optimization. Now, in the past, at working digitally, SEO is sort of seen as a bit of a sort of fringe uh, enterprise where um, a sort of entirely separate team of people who weren't really journalists just came up with daft questions like, uh, what time is EastEnders on? And someone would have to write enough words to sustain a copy, uh, sustain an article about what time EastEnders was on, so that when somebody Googled what time is EastEnders on, that web page would pop up. And it was just a way of just bringing eyeballs, getting clicks for essentially uh, worthless journalism. And there'd be the same sort of thing where you sometimes see, you know, uh who's Anton Dubeck's wife and how old is she? All that sort of stuff. <laughs> Just because if if one person wants to know how old Anton Dubeck's wife is, uh they'll come to your website. And it's all about getting those clicks. And actually I think what's happened increasingly, and we do it all the time in the Times, and there's a big SEO conversation happening internally all the time, is these are the questions that people are searching. So people if people are searching for uh is coronavirus caused by 5G? Um, then someone at the Times will ke- will commission a proper science uh, reporter to write a proper piece of journalism answering that question as a sort of reader service to uh, part you know partly because we want people to read that uh, but it's using those go- Google search questions is a great way of finding out what is it that people are talking about and it's not always you know fake news it might be uh what is chris witty's background and actually you know explaining to people that this is a guy with a long background in uh, dealing with virus outbreaks uh is useful but sometimes actually our role instead of assuming that people are reading every word in the times and so therefore know that the 5g uh, conspiracy isn't true Actually, we can tackle it head on. Put it in a headline. This is the question that we know is in people's minds right now, and we can tackle it head on. And obviously, you've got websites like Fact Check, which do do that in a in a, a much more um, consistent and regular way. But I think that's something I've seen a lot more uh, 
papers like the Times doing that actually even a few years ago that wasn't something we'd have done it was much more about just writing a straightforward news mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. and yeah, that's that's really quite quite an interesting take actually because something that I've been considered obviously is that it's it's one thing trying to remove or um try and yeah well try and remove uh, these these kind of bits of misinformation from from social media sites and i know organizations like facebook and twitter have done have done more now during during this period to to remove misinformation but obviously when someone comes across something they are going to end up googling or researching it and if proper fact based articles end up appearing that are targeting those such criteria then hopefully you're not going to catch everyone but hopefully um, people will go to your Times article or a, or an article in the BBC or wherever else, and then get dissuaded or, or see the facts about what what that thing is. You sort of catch it before it before it really ingrains in people's minds, and then it becomes even more difficult to make them understand that actually there is nothing scientific about the the theory you're spouting. Yeah, and so that's that's a definite shift in our newsroom and newsrooms generally. That previously. If there was a, a, a story doing the rounds, if you like, uh, that we looked into and found not to be true, we wouldn't report it because we only reported the true stuff. Uh, whereas now we will report the stuff we know not to be true because we know that it's doing the rounds, if you like. I mean, a, a much sillier example, if you like, was during the election campaign. There was a story that went uh, viral that Joe Swinson, the then Lib Dem uh, leader, was torturing squirrels, <laughs> uh, which was a, a sort of a mocked up, fu- a mocked up online, it was a sort of mocked up screen grab of an online story. And she ended up being asked about it. And I think most outlets reported it, partly because it was quite a silly story. Um, but also it means that if a reader of the Times or the BBC or the Guardian or the Daily Mail come across this picture circulating on Twitter and uh, or Facebook, whatever it might be, they could think, oh, no, I read about that. It's not true. And so they don't hit retweet or share and all that. So that's been a definite shift in our psychology. And sometimes you have to pick it right, because what you don't want to do is amplify something which hasn't got legs. You know, rubbish gets posted on social media all the time. So you don't want to just pick this one person with four followers saying something mad and then write a news story saying this is not true. So you have to sort of, and that's where the sort of the Google algorithm, you know, the Google algorithms and the, what people are searching really helps to sort of see what is tipped over into, okay, this is this is widespread enough now in the the, the public psyche, if you like, that we need to address this to, to tell our readers this is not true. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting because that was one of my, um, one of the things I was going to ask actually is because, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and, and debate around how to deal with conspiracy theories and misinformation. And one of the sort of counter arguments is that actually we should have a uh, almost media blackout of of this, of, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus linked to 5G or, or whatever else, just because does it then end up inflating the story more? Because then if you talk to someone that believes this stuff and it's like, oh, that's a concerted media effort by the mainstream to, you know, to, to uh, discredit us or, or disinform people or, or remove this from the public consciousness or whatever phrase they use. Um, do you feel that, that that's, that's ever a possibility that that could be an issue that if, you know, the Times or the BBC start to cover these, uh, these um, stories and, and debunk them in this way, um, but would it be possible that people that haven't come across the 5G story then end up researching it from from the back of that? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And that, that's why there's a balance to be struck in that. And at what point do you uh, start giving credit or just by reporting something in a mainstream media outlet, you are giving it some credence? Um, 
I mean, the bottom line is some people are a bit crazy and believe have always believed crazy stuff. You know, right back to the depths of history, uh, people have believed in mad stuff. And uh, in the good old days, um, even when I first started out as a journalist in the early noughties, um, those people sometimes came into reception on you know the local paper I worked or they'd write a letter there was a bit crackers and you'd put it in the bin and you'd forget all about it and now uh, they can find other like-minded crazy people online and circulate stuff and if something has just enough sort of um, texture to it that it sounds like it could almost be true and as I was saying in a world where of, of just total uncertainty people want to latch on to uh, um, you know, if someone is, is saying, well, fi- you know, 5G caused coronavirus, for a lot of people, that's more reassuring than we don't know where the hell this has come from. Because if we don't know where the hell it's come from, we don't know how to get rid of it. We don't know how to stop it coming back again. That unleashes a whole load more anxiety and fear. Whereas actually, oh, yeah, this that's how it came from. And so if we burn down all the masts, it will go away again. That's a much nicer feeling than the reality which is we don't know when we're going to be able to get life back to normal mm-hmm. i think that's, that's, that's interesting yeah because it's it, it is very much all about feeling um versus you know scientific fact which is uh regardless of how we spin it will always you know feeling will always trump fact at least for now because we're, we're human beings and that's just how we operate uh, and i think you're right you know people um you know they, they would rather think something that has no relevance in in fact at all just because it makes you it makes you more comfortable it makes you think oh well this is where it comes from so as you say you can petrol bomb a load of places and suddenly everything's fine again which of course is complete nonsense but it feels better than as you say not knowing where the hell any any of this came from um and it's interesting because as you're talking about in the sort of early noughties and people would write letters or you know they're, they're, people always used to have these beliefs so there was always a section of society that had these uh, beliefs but obviously the internet has given everybody the ability to pretty much publish essentially and just get their get their voices heard which in some instances we've seen is an incredible thing and social media is an amazing tool in a lot of ways uh, but we've also seen the negative impact of that of of you know the rise of say uh, what people would describe as sort of far right groups or, or or conspiracy theories and so forth in a level that we've we haven't seen before um do you feel like there needs to be more responsibility put on say social media companies or forums to deal with this kind of stuff because like you said before you would just bin the letter or or you just listen to that person that came into reception and then sort of quietly send them away and that'll be the end of it whereas now if you've got a good following on social media you can pretty much promote anything yeah so i think there's there's i mean you're you're right that um the explosion in social media i think has been by and large a good thing i agree my uh my job as a journalist is a richer, more interesting experience, both uh, my ability to promote what I'm doing, uh, but also to interact with the readers, to, uh, you know, even covering politics. The fact that I think it's about 600 of the 650 MPs are on Twitter means that uh, I know more about what they're doing and more about what they think, more about what where they are. Um, there's a, there's already probably a broader range of politicians are there for, uh, quoted and covered in newspapers in a way that a few years, not that long ago, everyone would have had their favourite pet half a dozen MPs that they'd go to for comment on everything. Um, so that's even just a microcosm of how it's changed. The, the way that I get reaction from readers, um, both on Twitter, the fact they can reply to my email, I get dozens of emails every day where people reply to the morning email, sometimes picking fault with things, sometimes with a fun suggestion or a joke or a, or a counter thought. Um, 
Uh, and the same with online comments. The fact that now it's not just a newspaper where people might have to get out a pen and paper and write a letter to the editor. They can go online. They can post comments. I get in and interactive with them. Um, uh, in fact, last week I commissioned a comment piece from a reader, uh, f having read their comments in the comment section. Because I'd written a piece about how um, some polling had showed the number of people who said they were feeling happy had gone up during the lockdown. There was all that anxiety and uh, concern and uncertainty uh, that we were talked about before. Before the lockdown happened, we knew coronavirus was here. We weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, levels of happiness and um, cont uh, being content plummeted. And during the lockdown, it's gone up again, partly because people feel a bit more certainty. So I'd written about this and somebody posted a comment underneath saying... Um, I don't think I should say this, but I want the lockdown to go on forever. This is, you know, my, I just want to stay at home, read books and write um, novels or something. Oh, wow. uh, and so I got, in I got in touch with them and said, that's a great comment piece. Now, that wouldn't have happened in the in the sort of the good old days where I'd have written something in the paper and have gone off and been handed to people and they would have had to read it and that would have been the end of it. So the interaction that you get on uh, social media and online generally, I think is really important. Um, we are also deluding ourselves as a sort of nice, cosy, liberal, mushy, centrist uh, sort of media society if we think that extreme views didn't exist before. We're just confronted with them more regularly uh, whether that's the extreme left or the extreme right, which I've come across both uh, in the course of reporting on politics. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> but it's not that these people didn't exist before. Mm. It was just possible for uh, someone like me to go through life not coming across them. Um, and uh, the downside to that is that, um, you know, the sort of metropolitan elite idea of you know if everyone in politics basically went to the same schools and the same universities and they've all got the same ideas and they never come across anyone with a genuine concern about immigration or a genuine concern about wages uh then um and you're completely blind to that because you're more concerned about how many kitchens ed miliband's got rather than the number of people who are coming into the country then um someone else can come along and exploit that whether that's the far right or or other political parties um and so being aware of that and seeing how that can um, uh, take hold online, I think is really important. And actually, um, you know, I still, I've, I've muted more of them increasingly recently. But, you know, when I used to write about Jeremy Corbyn and I'd get a massive pile on from his enthusiastic supporters online, it was important in a way to have that check for me to think, oh, actually, what's that? I mean, what, I mean, most of the time I thought, yes, I was right and they were wrong. But sometimes they sort of, they pointed out a flaw in what I'd said or whatever. So there is, that, that challenge is important. It was important for me to realise, actually, there are people out there who do not agree with me. And that is a really important part of being a columnist. I mean, it's definitely an important part of being a reporter, of being aware of a broad range of views. Um, but it's not that, yeah, it's not that people didn't used to think this stuff. It's just... Uh, we all lived in our bubbles before, if you like, um, and it's it's possible now to live in your bubble. You only follow people on social media who you like and agree with, and you mute everyone else, uh, and so that can all become self reinforcing. But I think there's a much more opportunity now for people to come across conflicting views than they used to. That's interesting, because I mean, then and this then this conversation's been been um, going on, I think, for some time that um, social media and the internet. And the thing is, it's down to personal choice, isn't it? Because if you wanted to, you could engage with all of these views. You could see this kind of the good, the bad and the ugly, if you want to call it, of, of sort of humanity or the different views or the different episodes. But then I think for a lot of people, you, you kind of want to reaffirm 
what you believe and and the way obviously social media and so forth is built is that they want it wants you to click on things because obviously you know if you if you want to buy i don't know shoes on on facebook once you click on a on a post to buy shoes then you end up seeing more shoes later on down the line because again it's about clicking and of course the media and, and articles and opinion pieces or whatever else obviously fall into that as well of course um so you end up almost creating that bubble for yourself so i wonder how true is it that that I mean, you definitely can get a myriad of different opinions if you wanted to, but I, I just—it's it's kind of a curiosity of how many people actually do. I suppose, my- uh, apart from obviously the the, the heavily politicised individuals that you were talking about, say that are are very much involved in politics th- and therefore will it. Yeah, I suppose my point is more: uh, in the 1980s, if someone read the Daily Mirror or read the Daily Mail, they weren't also reading a wide range of other views. I suppose it's, my point is more. Um, people uh, surrounding, you know, only taking their news from one place is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, uh, that's true. If you like, true. it's um, it's basic. It's basically how the media, um, you know, the 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 Times business model is based on the idea that people are going to pay for it every day, not they're going to dip it in out and might go somewhere else and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but, you know, people talk about the paywall. Well, there's always been paywalls on newspapers. It used to be called the news agent, and you had to go in and buy a newspaper, and you would generally only buy one, and that would be your uh, your worldview for a long time. Um, so, yeah, you're, I suppose in a way, that it, what I'm saying is it's always been a problem, people living in their bubbles. Um, I, I, and uh, you hope that more people will get there. I, I think sometimes our view of what's going on online can be really skewed by the extremes. Um, that actually there could be loads of perfectly quiet people lurking on Twitter who never tweet, but they're you know following an interesting range of people. But the people I'm very aware of, the people who get very shouty at me about when I post something which they don't uh, <laughs> they don't agree with, um, and so uh, yeah, I think you can be a bit distorted. Uh, but of course, we all live in our bubbles. That's sort of human nature. Nobody, in fact, has got the time to read. 10 newspaper websites every day and then come to a considered opinion on every possible thing that they've uh, come across, which is why finding a news source which you like and think broadly you can trust is probably more important than sort of drawing up a schedule for yourself of, of uh, you know, 10 sites that you need to cross-check everything with at all times because mm. uh, that sort of takes the fun out of, of news as well. Yeah, no, of course. And then you can begin up spending your entire life just trying to read other opinions and and some people do that for a living but most of us don't unfortunately but um no i think i think i think there's a there's a really fair point to be said there um and you mentioned something about um you know paywalls because i think you're right there's always been a, a paywall to some extent but obviously with the internet um and you know with, with social media and so forth we have access to pretty much endless amounts of good and awful information at, at our fingertips and one of the things that that I think is is a, is a constant um, discussion point or a constant bit of discussion is that um, journalism for 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 a while now has been seen as something that is that is free. You know the the uh, the BBC is is free freely accessible. The uh, the Guardian is freely accessible. The Independent is freely accessible. Obviously, the Times has a has a paywall and other organisations have a paywall. But there, there's it's not. It's not a secret to say that that journalism is facing a bit of a um, a bit of a crisis in terms of monetization and. You know, whereas before you could do more long-winded investigative pieces or, or be a bit more creative with the way you're covering you're covering stories and so forth, now it's been, become not all publications, obviously, because we're sweeping generalizations, but some of them have become you know racing for clickbait, making sure that you have as much traffic as possible going to your site. And I wonder if there is a need for us in general as the popu- as as an audience to 
reevaluate how much we value journalism, good fact-based comment pieces and so forth. Because if it is that you value things however much you pay for them, we don't really value journalism at all at the moment in some aspects. I think that's right. And I, I, the, the BBC is what complicates matters because people think it's free, but it's not free. You've paid for it through your licence fee. You don't. You just don't have to uh, put your licence fee number in when you go online. Um, and so that has skewed the media in the UK in a way that it hasn't in uh, other countries. Um, and when the Times put its paywall up back in... Uh, when was it? Uh, 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 2010. When the Times put its paywall up in um, 2010... People said it was mad. You know, it was getting uh, um, you know millions of people going on the website, uh, and they put up the paywall, and obviously that went off a cliff really quickly. Um, and now, quite a lot of the online media in the UK is seeking to charge in some way. So the Telegraph has got a sort of metered paywall, you, oh, and some articles are premium. The Independent has got things which are premium, and you have to pay for. The Guardian asks for donations towards the 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 cost of running the site. Um, and so there's a recognition that um, journalism has to be paid for, and nobody has really yet found a way of um, properly monetizing, uh, giving away news online. I used to work at Mail Online when it was um, the you know we were always the world's biggest newspaper website, um, and it was still it wasn't exactly coining it in. In fact, we we're having to take on more and more staff all the time to try and keep up with the keep feeding the beast, which is an incredibly expensive way of. Uh, of try to stay is the the world's number one um and uh, advertising uh, because there are so many places you can advertise now it's not just on the 10 major newspaper websites uh, you can advertise on any possible website which means it's much cheaper to do and you know your big supermarket brands or car brands or whatever it could be can go and do that elsewhere so the amount of money you can get to the same number of eyes uh is, as you would in a newspaper is um massively diminished now I think the other thing is that the part of the reason why people quite like buying into a paywall or buying into, uh, you know, the sort of long term donation scheme of the Guardian is they want to feel part of a club. They sort of identify with the values of this publication. Uh, they like the topics it covers, whether it's, you know, sport or the environment or politics, or whatever it might be. It might be that they like the columnists. Um, and then you might just feel like this is a, this is a club that I like to be in. And that's um, there's a big part of that with the Times. It's part of the reason why Times Radio is launching as a sort of extension of that um, of that brand, if you like. And then I think, uh, finally, there's, a, there's an element of there is so much news around. People who've got lives to lead, and obviously at the moment, lots of us haven't, and so we've got plenty of time to sort of scatter around. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> but, um, in a normal situation, yeah. Yeah, in a in, in normal life, you're busy, you get up, you know, get the kids to school, get to work, commute, and, you know, and all that, and then you're out um, seeing friends, whatever it might be. You haven't got time to go around like reading. The, the, the amount of news online can be daunting. So actually, the, um, the sense of, okay, this... This club that I'm in, people who I trust are going to curate the news that I need to know in a sort of finite way. And uh, all the research that we've uh, had for Times Online is that fewer, people want fewer stories. They want to feel like they can get to the end of it. The reason that newsletters are in 
increasingly popular. Email is such a sort of old technology these days. But the reason people like newsletters, the reason they like a red box, the a political newsletter is they like to get to the end of it they like to think okay i'm interested in politics what do i need to know and i can see the top and bottom of this and i can read this and i'll be across everything and there's links to other stuff i want to you can't get to the bottom of the mail online homepage. it's sort of you know no people people have been missing for years trying to get to the bottom of the mail online homepage, um and that's not everything it's on the internet and so i think um, it could be quite daunting and people quite like the idea of, oh, OK, this is everything that I need to know that the, the, I, I identify with the Times brand. Um, and if they've left something out, I don't need to know. I can live without knowing about that. It's, it's the same reason why people, more people tune into the six o'clock news bulletin than watch a rolling news channel, because you could spend all day watching a rolling news channel and still not be quite sure what the main story was. It's a sort of never ending melange. And that, that's basically what the Internet is. And that sort of... Um, the Times website only updates uh, at nine o'clock, midday, and at five o'clock, and then the paper goes online at midnight. Um, and again, it's because people want considered, calm, sort of rational analysis, even if they have to wait a bit longer for it, rather than this sort of scatter, but, oh, something's happened. Get, get it online. How significant is it? Never mind that. Just get it online and we'll decide whether or not it's significant or true afterwards. But people are saying on Twitter that this has happened and we should do it. Um, and uh, people find all that a bit overwhelming, I think. So I think, um, uh, and in the long term, journalism is only going to work if people pay for it. You know, And one thing that we're really going to, I think, sadly discover as a result of the coronavirus crisis is that most newspaper outlets still get most of their money from selling newspapers not from online and uh one huge advantage we're very lucky at the times um the uh you know there haven't been mass layoffs or anything like that and partly it's because we've got this guaranteed income of half a million more than half a million people paying uh, for subscriptions whereas if we were relying entirely on people going to shops and paying for the paper that would be a nightmare because people aren't going to the shops and doing that because the shops are shut yeah, no, of course, of course. And then, you know, I mean, just just looking for the future, even without this, I mean, newspaper sales have been have been in decline naturally. And then more things are moving online. So if you're not moving your business model and advancing with the times, you are going to struggle. Um, but do you feel like this? I mean, it may sound crude to say uh, there's, there's, there's a silver lining in this, but I think there is a silver lining in, in, in the pandemic. And that is that one, I feel like, as as you said earlier, people are trusting um, good media content and good journalism more, um, and I think after this, they're gonna there's gonna be a newfound respect. I mean, I might be talking out of turn, but I think there's a newfound respect for for journalists in the way they're covering stories and the way they're making sure that people are informed during this during this during this insanity. Um, and maybe there will be a shift, and I think there needs to be a shift in in the way people uh, view and value. Uh, good journalistic content because it is it is a pinnacle in our democracy if you don't have a newspaper if you don't have journalists if you don't have journalism covering and criticizing and critiquing the government um democracy can't really operate you need to that, have that pillar i think that's totally right there's also been this big debate about uh journalists at the daily press conferences um in downing street and the way the way that the questions are asked the way that the questions aren't always answered um and uh, I can see why for some people going into the sausage factory and seeing how news works could be a sort of people don't want to know what goes on in sausages a lot of the time you just quite like what comes out <laughs> at the end um, and I think uh, there's been a you bit... might not eat them if you did it's exactly sure. exactly and I think if you um, a press conference the, the government is trying to use a press conference to communicate a public health 
message. Uh, but traditionally, press conferences are a way of eliciting information. And so they tend to go on for quite a long time. And most of it is unusable because people ask questions and the answer is either unchanged or they can't answer it or they won't answer it. Um, and that's why you, it goes on for an hour. And then you see three minutes of it on the news because that's the only three minutes which was new or uh, worthwhile. Whereas because, because this is such a massive crisis and people are at home, the entire nation sits down at five o'clock every day to watch the press conference and goes, oh, that's a stupid question. Well, they weren't going to answer that, were they? Um, and it's not, it's not always. Sometimes there's a little bit of showboating, particularly TV reporters, you know, do like to appear on TV, which is why they all sometimes ask the same question just so they can be filmed asking the same question to use in their packages. But by and large, most journalists genuinely want to get an answer to a question. Um, and uh, I think you could argue that things like uh, PPE, uh, the, the lack of protective equipment for people on the front line, I think the lack of testing and then the commitment to uh, massively ramping up the testing and then getting there and then it turning out that maybe it wasn't quite what um, it was billed, all of that was down to journalists asking questions about it and um, uh, piling on the pressure. And I always think when people... Um, so what are the journalists done? And well, you don't know about these things because a journalist hasn't told you. You sitting at home wouldn't know how many pieces of PPE the government didn't didn't have unless a journalist went in and found it out. So has it been perfect? No, I don't think it has. But then this is an imperfect crisis uh, that we've all you know the the you've got the I mean you've got literally the physical sense that it's an incredibly difficult thing to report on because people are doing it remotely. Um, but it's also something like we've never come across before and so everyone sort of found their way in it if you like but i do think that ultimately anything that someone is concerned about in this crisis has almost certainly come from a journalist uh, spreading the message um uh, and interrogating the questions and uh i mean the times is doing an extraordinary piece of work at the moment on uh, taking the official statistics and trying to interpret what that might mean going forward in terms of excess deaths and that sort of thing and that's that's a real sort of reader service it's um uh, and that's ultimately what people will end up valuing, hopefully. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's, it's valuing that because it's showing the the importance of democracy. And I think after, after all of this, we really need to reevaluate how we how we view our democracy and how much we value the the institutions uh, that keep it up. Not just obviously journalism, but education and all sorts of other areas. But journalism is a way of keeping the powerful to account and making sure that information, correct information, is 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 given to you. And of course. Uh, when you see sometimes uh, the wrong information, it can lead to people doing silly things or potentially end up harming themselves or others. Um, finally, in, in for 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 people that don't know, how how can uh, we all stay a little bit safer online? Uh, what what kind of um, tips or, or tactics or tools do you use in your day to day to make sure that the the information you get is is verified or that comes from a trusted source either a commentator or, or something like that that uh, makes sure that you're not being duped by say misinformed or, or, or false content i mean I, I, I mean i probably do this most days if i see something on twitter uh and sometimes it might be from a journalist or it might be you know that something that someone has retweeted to my timeline um i'll just google it and see if that is what comes up um and if it turns out that half a dozen news sources have written the same story uh, that gives me more reassurance that that is the case than if it's just a tweet and then when you google it nothing comes up that's anything like that now it could be that you know if a journalist is breaking news online um then it won't be anywhere else it'll just be on twitter but you know um you should also remember that journalists uh want to be right they don't always get it right 
Um, and it, sometimes it's down to interpretation or their uh, selective use of information or selective access to information. But journalists want to be right. You know, journalists like to win awards and you win awards for getting stuff right. Um, and so uh, the more high profile the journalist, um, the more pressure there is to get everything right. Um, uh, you know, and uh, Laura Koonsberg springs to mind as someone who gets a phenomenal amount of um, abuse online because uh, she's constantly treading a tightrope between, you know, political parties and worldviews. And uh, um, th- there's a huge amount of pressure on uh, high profile journalists, especially to get stuff right. But all of us, you know, if we if you if I write a story in the paper, which is wrong, uh, then there's a, um, you know, we'll have to write a correction or somebody might take us to the. Um, uh, Ipso, the the independent regulator, or they might sue if it's you know if it's defamatory, uh, and that's not good if that happens, and the boss won't like it, and I'll probably be holding the coals for it. And so, um, uh, people want to get this stuff right. It doesn't, you know, not everything goes right because, like I was saying, you know, you're not writing a book where you've got months to to go over it. You know, news can be fast and dirty sometimes. But I think that sort of um. Doing your if something just doesn't ring true, then it might not be. And so, sort of read around the subject a little bit. Um, I think also, even sometimes there could be a story that really blows up on a on one newspaper's front page. If it doesn't really take off on the morning bulletins, and it doesn't really appear again on other news websites during the day or other papers the next day, maybe there was an issue with that story. If if stories don't get followed up, so even the fact that one normally reliable source. Uh, has reported something. Um, sometimes they get stuff wrong. Sometimes, or sometimes they thought it was right at the time, and the you know the government's changed its position or whatever it might be. Um, so just reading around and seeing uh, if if um, things have been followed up. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and the beauty, of course, of the internet is you can go right back to primary sources. You can go and read the the sage advice published by the government advisors, or you can go and watch what's happening in the House of Commons. Uh, you can watch the whole press conference. You can look at the figures released every day uh, on the spreadsheets if you really want to. Um, and you can really sort of get to grips with a uh, topic yourself rather than just taking one tweet or post on Facebook and thinking well, that's all I need to know about the subject. Mm. No, of course. I, th- I think that's I think that's very sound advice. I think we need to, we need to make sure that we read around. And if we find something that seems incredible or that is... Um, you know, uncovered or, or uh, you know, potential breaking news piece, the chances are, of course, is that if it's true and if it's real, then pretty much every single major outlet in the UK or whichever country it's been, been, been exposed in or blown up by will be covering it in a matter of hours, if it's true. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, there'll be a little bit of jealousy on the part of journalists to start with. Oh, they've got a good story. Um, but if it's a good story, it's a good story and everyone will be all over it. Of course, of course. Matt, thank you so much and thank you for listening to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction produced by Shoutout UK, recorded and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department.